I'd like to invite you this morning to turn with me in your copy of God's Word. If you use a Bible, that's awesome. I I guess I should say find your way in your copy of God's Word, whether it be electronic or paperback version. Find your way with me to Matthew chapter 11. We're continuing our way through the text this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 11. We've been looking at John the Baptist the last two weeks as he has found himself uh, in prison as a, on account of the fact that, that he's been proclaiming the gospel. Um, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 11. There's three things we're going to learn as we consider John the Baptist this morning. Um, three things I just want to draw your attention to. Um, for those of you who are new or visiting with us today, it's our custom to go through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and so we've been for a little while now, three years in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're working our way through chapter 11. Three things I want you to pick apart today as we look. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 7 to 15. First thing I want you to see is the Baptist's loyalty to Jesus, John's loyalty to Jesus, and furthermore, I want you to be aware of the fact that Jesus is loyal to John. It's not just a one-way street, it's reciprocal. There is a reciprocal faithfulness. John to Jesus, Jesus to John. Number two, I want you to see that our experiences, whatever we go through in life, absolutely has to be understood in light of the Scriptures. There is a tendency, there is a danger, and all too often we are guilty of this, reading the Scriptures in light of our experience. We need to read our experiences By the light of Scripture. Number three, there's an incredible promise that we're going to see here today. The opportunity to be greater than John the Baptist. So if you would, look with me. Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 to 15. We'll read the text and then we'll, we'll get to work. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? That's a rhetorical question, obviously not. Well, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what Jesus says to us this morning through the word. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for speaking to us, for giving us your word. Lord, I just pray as we look at this text this morning, I just pray that as we consider the example that you have set before us in John the Baptist, and furthermore, your response to the crowds 
and defending him. That we would be encouraged, Lord, to be faithful to you. Help us to understand what it means to be truly great. Open our eyes, shine your spirit upon this text, and help us to grasp what it is that you are saying to us, your people, today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In retrospect, he should never have betrayed him, but he did. Betrayal is the worst difficulty that I can fathom. I think being betrayed by someone who is close to you is a greater pain even than losing a loved one. If you're close friends with someone, if you welcome that person into your home as a part of your family, for that person to turn their back on you can hurt. For some of the Studio 32-7 kids who are with us this morning, I imagine you have known in school the difficulty, the heartache of having a friend, someone you're close to, turn around and leave you to go sit with the cool kids at lunch, you know, and to abandon you and to forsake you, or even worse, to make fun of you and to belittle you in front of others. All of us in this room can attest to an experience similar to that. I'm not talking about John the Baptist. I'm talking about King David and his most faithful counselor, I should say his wisest counselor, up until he betrayed him, Ahithophel. David's son, Absalom, conspires together with a number of individuals in Israel and basically revolts, commits treason, attempts to uh, achieve a coup d'etat to throw King David off of his throne. And the individual who helps him do it is, as far as 2 Samuel concerned, one whose counsel was, was unto like the word of God. I mean, Ahithophel wasn't just any counselor, he was the counselor. Everybody turned to him for wisdom, everybody turned to him for counsel, and the scriptures make it clear that King David, as he presided over the nation of Israel, had Ahithophel sitting at his table, he was a part of his court, he leaned on him for his counsel. When Absalom rebels against King David, Ahithophel says, well, I want to be a part of the cool kid's table. David is out. Absalom is in, I'm with Absalom. Years later, reflecting on this, David writes a psalm under the inspiration of the Spirit. This is a psalm that is encapsulating David's personal feelings about that time in his life, but it's also a psalm that has prophetic significance, pointing forward to Jesus. In Psalm 41, David writes, All who, all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In standing up for Jesus, and proclaiming a message of repentance in order to prepare men's hearts for the coming of Christ. John finds himself in prison. He finds himself locked away behind bars. And things aren't quite going the way he expected them to go. Things aren't unfolding 
the way he understood that they should unfold. He turns to Jesus, and he's having doubts, and he poses the question, are you the one who is to come? Or do we look for another? He's struggling with that. Jesus gives his response to John, blessed is the man who's not offended because of me. Now, if you're the crowd, if you're the audience, if you're living in Galilee, if you're there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, you've seen John the Baptist, you've seen this guy preach, you understand who he is, now you're seeing him in prison, and as you're watching the next great preacher, Jesus, do his thing, disciples from John the Baptist come to Jesus and say, hey, are you really the one we've been looking for? Now, if you're the guy watching all this go down, you're going to begin to question whether or not John the Baptist was really as resolute in his proclamation of Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the Son of the world. You're going to begin to wonder whether or not he's as solid, as if he's as committed to Christ as you, as you thought he was. You're going to begin to question, maybe not out loud, but in your heart, you're going to begin to question the character of John the Baptist. Nobody says anything publicly, but that doesn't stop Jesus from sticking up for John. He comes to John's defense. Nobody's saying anything, but you got to assume that they're thinking it. Jesus doesn't hesitate to defend John. And by the way, this isn't necessarily the wisest thing to do. Let me, let me put it another way. It's not necessarily the most pragmatic thing to do. John is in prison for offending Herod by calling Herod's sin out for what it was. Herod had married Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and John had said that's wrong. John is having doubts, and Jesus, in a day and age in which the king of Israel, Herod, can throw you into prison for no other reason than the fact that you politically disagree with him, he comes to John's defense, and he makes the statement. Now, they don't say anything. They don't say, oh, man, I guess John isn't what I thought he was. They're, they're probably thinking it. Maybe not even all of them are thinking it. I mean, you could be talking just a small group of people in the crowd are wondering now. Jesus comes to John's defense. He makes a statement, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Everybody's living in houses. Everybody's living in towns. They're having the comfortable life. They have their leisurely life. John shuns all of that. He doesn't want anything to do with the temple compound. He doesn't want anything to do with the false pharisaical religion that is preeminent preeminent in that day and age. He doesn't want anything to do with the temple compound. So when he preaches, he goes out in the wilderness. To go hear John preach, you have to go out into the wilderness, which means that if you're going to make the trek to hear John the Baptist preaching, you're going to have to endure a little bit of a journey. And that's the first thing that Jesus appeals to was their previous experience of John. He says, what motivated you? What compelled you guys to go out into the wilderness to hear John speaking? And he's going to ask two rhetorical questions. Rhetorical question number one. Is John to you like a reed shaken by the wind? Notice what he says there. He says, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind. You can imagine reeds planted in uh, you know, shallow water, and as the wind blows, 
the reeds will bend this way, and as the wind blows the other direction, they'll bend that way. And it's a reference to the fact that John is not fickle, he's not calculating, he's not like a politician, he's not just trying to figure out where the vast majority of people's opinion is at, where community or public opinion is. He's not, you know, sticking his finger in the air trying to figure out which way the wind is blowing. He's not trying to appease people. In fact, he shuns the temple compound. He shuns the religious establishment. The Pharisees come out to hear him preach, and he calls them a bunch of snakes. That can be offensive. And so Jesus' statement to them is, why did you even go out in the wilderness in the first place? It clearly was not because you saw a man that just went with the flow that bent like a reed in the wind. Rhetorical question number one. Rhetorical question number two. Did you go out to see a guy wearing soft clothing? Makes a statement. A man dressed in soft clothing. This is just comfortable clothes, guys. We're talking pajamas, all right? Um, in this day and age, to be involved in agriculture, you know, agriculture or shepherding, these types of things are predominantly the, the, the industry. You're involved in growing crops or you're involved in some sort of ranching activity, this type of thing, working with lambs and whatnot. And, and that type of work, you know, just like today, you're going to wear blue jeans. You're not going to wear a nice pair of slacks to go out and work in the field. And so in this day and age, people who wear comfortable clothing are not your average run-of-the-mill guys who are... Uh, you know, the average run-of-the-mill guys are wearing, like, blue jeans. Now, that's not literally what they're wearing. They're wearing more coarser type of fabric. It has to do with the fact that John was a disciplined individual. It makes a statement, Did you go see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. That's a little bit of an inference from the ESV, the translators. The word is just houses. Um, the idea here is uh, that people who wear soft clothing reside or dwell in houses. They're not the ones that are out doing the labor, okay? It doesn't literally say king's houses. The word is not for a palace or anything like that. That's just a little bit of an inference that is read into the text by the translators of the ESV. The thrust of the passage is this. People who work with their hands, people who actually have to get up and earn a living, this is John the Baptist. In other words, he's not privileged He's not a son of prestige. He can't just hang out in his house all day. He had to work. In fact, from what we know of the Baptist, soft clothing was not what he wore at all. He wore camel's clothing, camel hair, camel skin, which I'm told is extremely uncomfortable. So John wasn't political. He wasn't calculating. He wasn't fickle. He didn't blow whichever way the crowd was going. John wasn't a pariah, he wasn't a, a Madonna, he wasn't a, a kind of individual that, you know, was unfamiliar with a hard, day, a hard day's labor. He was an ordinary guy. So what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, that's what they all wanted to see. The last guy to prophesy came 400 years before. Israel as a nation hasn't heard fresh revelation from the Lord in over 200, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon, over 400 years. So there's this guy out in the wilderness saying that the Messiah is coming. 
And you need to get ready. You need to take stock of your life. You need to repent. The valleys need to be lifted up. The hills need to be brought low. All the rough places in your life need to be smoothed out so that when Messiah does come, you'll be ready to receive your king. Now, that's a message they all wanted to hear. That's a message that John the Baptist was happy to deliver. Because the expectation is that when the Messiah comes, he'll put every wrong right. He'll heal every sickness. He'll take away every disease. And all the bad kings will be deposed. And the true king will take his rightful place on the throne. Is that good news? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. Does John want to proclaim that message? Absolutely. Absolutely he does. Except there's a little problem. Now he's in jail. And as he's observing the ministry of Jesus, he realizes this prison cell doesn't look like a temporary stop for me. I'm probably going to die in this prison cell. That's why he turns to Christ. And Christ answers his question and he turns to the crowd and he defends John the Baptist. He says he was great. He wasn't fickle. He wasn't a pariah. He wasn't a Madonna. He understood a hard day's labor. He was one who was willing to work. Why did you go out to see him? He was a prophet and more. They assumed he was a prophet. And if you'll look with me in verse 9, Jesus makes a statement in verse 9 and verse 10. He says, yes, he was, and I tell you more. In other words, you haven't gone far enough in your estimation of John. John is wondering, did I mess this thing up? Did I call it wrong? Are you the Messiah or are we looking for another guy? And Jesus' statement, he responds to John. The crowd is hearing this, and now he's going to respond to the crowd. He says, John is not wrong. He was a prophet. If you think he's a prophet, you've assumed correctly but you need to take it to the next level. Not just any prophet, the prophet, the messenger. And he's going to quote, this is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He's going to quote Malachi 3, 1, which incidentally Malachi is the last revelation given to Israel 400 years prior before the coming of Christ. He's going back to the last prophecy that the nation of Israel has had and he quotes it, behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me. John's the guy. John's wondering am I the guy? And Jesus' statement to John is yes, you're the guy. His statement to Israel yes, he's the guy. Now what's the problem? The problem is that it isn't going the way John thought it was going to go. He's reading Malachi. And in two different places in Malachi, it references this messenger. It references him first in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And then it references him again at the very end of the book. Again, it says, I will send Elijah before you, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's a day speaking of judgment. That's a day speaking of the fact that Christ will take his place on the throne. 
So what was the problem with John? Look at verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. You know, it's interesting, this verse and the way that it's worded in the original Greek has created some consternation for interpreters. Entire books have been written on this one verse in terms of what does it mean. It could be read one of two ways. It could be interpreted one of two ways. I think the context makes it fairly clear. The novel interpretation would be that the kingdom of heaven comes with violence and only violent people make it into it. That's one way you could possibly read it. Um, That is a possible rendering. And, And scholars have used this to encourage the fact that individuals who would chase after Jesus have to be dogged and determined in their pursuit of Christ. And if you're not dogged and you're not determined and you're not disciplined going after Jesus... Well, then, you're not really a disciple, and, and you, might not, you might not make it. Now, discipleship is called for by the Lord, but the other way you could read this verse, one that I think suits the context, is that when the kingdom of heaven comes, there will be violence. It will come with violence. And when it says the violent will take it by force, it could just refer to evil men who try to oppose its arrival. And given the fact that Jesus has just said, I'm going to unleash a sword on the earth. You may have think I've come to bring peace, but I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to turn families against each other. Given the fact that John the Baptist is in prison and wondering if he's going to make it out, and given the fact that Jesus is responding to John the Baptist's question about whether or not this is all going to weigh down the way it's supposed to go, it doesn't seem right that Jesus would say to John, hey, dude, you're in prison. Well, if you want to get into heaven, you're going to have to get violent. Does that really make sense, given the context? No. See, what John thought was going to happen was that he was going to proclaim Messiah. Messiah was going to come, and then all the bad stuff would stop. And Jesus' statement to the crowd is this. What John doesn't understand is that when the kingdom of heaven comes, violence is coming with it. And violent men are going to try to oppose it. The first thing I want you to see is when John begins to struggle with doubt, when the crowd hears this and might begin to question the character of John, Jesus defends him. When John doesn't understand exactly what's happening, Jesus tells him exactly where his experience and his understanding of his experience is different than what actually is. John's reading Malachi, and John thinks, I'm the guy, and this, according to Malachi, is what needs to happen, day of the Lord. Jesus is reading Malachi but here's the difference. John's trying to understand himself 
and his ministry in accordance with his experiences and his circumstances and what's unfolding. And he's trying to understand whether or not he's fulfilling his purpose according to his understanding of what the scriptures are saying. And he's doing the right thing by turning to Jesus. And Jesus is going to help John understand who he is based on his absolute certainty in knowing who he is. Jesus will help John understand his experiences based on Jesus. Now, this is critical. This is what we all need to hear today. When we come to the scriptures, we read good things that we like, we read wonderful promises, amazing truths of heaven and eternity, and we read things about the fact that one day all disease will be healed, all pain will be taken away, all sickness will be removed. We read about the fact that one day God himself is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. We like those things. And then sometimes we experience not a removal of sickness, pain, or persecution. We experience more sickness, pain, and persecution. And our tendency is to doubt. Doubting is okay as long as you don't stay there in your doubt. But the right response is to turn to Christ. Whatever you do, do not try to read the Bible through your understanding of your experiences. If you read the Bible, God will help you through the Bible to understand your experiences. He makes a statement. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah. So there's no doubt. This is Elijah. John makes it. I mean, Jesus makes the statement. He makes it emphatically clear. You're wondering about the messenger who's supposed to come before the Messiah arrives. Guess what? The messenger is here. The messenger has arrived. John the Baptist is the messenger. He is Elijah. The next statement he says is, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, all the law and all the prophets prophesied until John. What's the totality of the Old Testament trying to say? The totality of the Bible is trying to say that there is a day coming in which a king is going to usher in a kingdom of righteousness in which everybody will be delivered from their sin. It's also saying that try as hard as we can, none of us in this room can make that kingdom come. None of us in this room on our own are even capable of stopping ourselves from sinning and making this world worse. Jesus is saying, you've been told, you've heard, all the prophets, all along, John the Baptist, everybody is pointing to the fact that one day there's going to be a Messiah. Guess what? There's a messenger that comes right before the Messiah comes. Guess what? He came. It happened. 
Jesus is saying this, and everybody's looking at Jesus, and he says, okay then, so, the messenger has come. Are you listening? I, I can just sort of picture in my mind him kind of saying, right, yes, you getting it? In other words, what that means is, if you've ever had any hopes, if you've ever had any desire for a better future, if you have ever been disgusted and horrified at the things you encounter in this life, if you've ever tried to go out and to find a better way, if you've ever tried to do it better on your own, there is no other name given under heaven whereby this world will be improved or whereby you can be saved. The only name that God has given and all the law and prophets bear witness to it and the messenger came just exactly as the scripture said John the Baptist proclaimed it, and Jesus fulfilled it. The person you're looking for, the King of Kings, is Jesus. Which means that if you're going to understand your life in any regard, not just the pain, not just the disease that you might encounter, not just the loss that you might experience, if you're to make sense of even the most fundamental things, why am I here? What is my purpose? What am I living for? If you're going to answer any of those questions, you have to start with Jesus Christ. Because you cannot truthfully answer any of those questions without first turning to the Lord. Your experiences and the experiences you will have will not make any sense unless Jesus is at the center of your life. You have to make him the center of your life the way John the Baptist did. Some of us in this room, if we stand up for Christ, we proclaim the truth of the gospel, we experience persecution. Just like John the Baptist did. I want you to step way back out of the text. I want you to see something here. How seriously do you think this crowd is really questioning the Baptist's character? We don't know with any certainty. I'm tempted to think that they probably weren't thinking too much about it. Maybe a fleeting thought. Maybe a passing notion. Oh, yeah, what? I guess that guy isn't as firm in his belief as I thought he was. Maybe at most that's what it was. But what was John proclaiming? He was proclaiming Jesus. Which means that if any any character assassination, if, if any besmirching of John's character takes place because he was preaching Jesus, that's an affront to Jesus. John served Jesus, and when people, even in the smallest degree, might have been tempted to question John for the sake of his own glory, Jesus will defend John, which means he does defend John, which means, and publicly, even to the smallest questioning of his character, Jesus doesn't hesitate to go on record before a watching world and to defend his servant, which means that for you and I in this room today, we go to work tomorrow. For many of us, we're going to go out, we're going to punch the clock, and 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, it starts. For some of us who pull a night shift, it's going to start 10, 10 o'clock, midnight tonight. The question is going to come, well, what did you do? Oh, I went to church. Oh, you know, and they're going to lay into you. Oh, you religious people, 
religions or crutch, etc., so forth. And you're going to be tempted to just sort of like, oh, yeah, you know, hang your head. That is not the Baptist way. I'm just telling you, that's not what John did. And some of you are going to stand up for Jesus. Some of you are going to be persecuted for it. And as you're persecuted for it, you're going to be thinking to yourself, you know, my experience is that when I tell people about Jesus, it gets me nowhere. It gets them nowhere. How many of you have had that thought? I have. You try to share the love of Christ with a man, and it goes nowhere. You do it 5, 10, 15 times, and you... You're not surprised to find 15 straight times sharing the gospel, it goes nowhere. And you begin to ask inside yourself, really, what's the point? What's this all worth? I don't know about you, but for me personally, I am pleased to stick up for Jesus as many times as I have opportunity. Even if every single time I get made fun of for it. Because one thing I know for certain, as I observe the resurrected king, he is going to get my back sooner or later. He'll stick up for me. He stuck up for John the Baptist. He'll stick up for you. Do you want to know why? Because you stuck up for him. And that's a reflection on him, whether or not he defends his own honor by defending his servants. It gets even better than that. I've saved the best for last. Church, look at me. Look at the Bible with me. Verse 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now that's an interesting exception there. Jesus is also born of a woman. This is sort of a little caveat because, you know, Jesus is better than John, okay? And he's been born by this point in time. So Jesus isn't wanting to diminish himself. In a subtle way, he's still exalting himself. He's saying among normal men born of women, John's the greatest. And again, that's a good thing for John to hear as he's sitting in his prison cell with the cold iron bars staring him in the face. He's not probably feeling particularly great in that moment. He's not feeling like the greatest man that ever has lived besides Jesus in that moment. But Jesus' estimation of him is, yeah, he's the greatest. He's the greatest. But John only had half the story. He knew that there was a Messiah who was going to come. He knew that there was a king who was going to come and judge the world. And that's the message he proclaimed. Be in fear of the one coming. And when we step back and we observe what Jesus has done, we understand more than John. 
we understand, based on what Jesus did on the cross, that the one we need to be saved from is the one who saves us. John preached, be afraid of the one coming. Get your heart right. And Jesus is saying, that's true. Be afraid of the one who has now arrived. Get your heart right. But know this. I'm the one that's going to save you from God's judgment. Jesus' statement here, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, the one who is the least, that is, the most junior, lowest grade, lowest level citizen in the kingdom of heaven, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. And this is what it has to amount to. John knew Jesus was the one who came to take away the sins of the world. He knew Jesus was the Lamb of God. But he had an incomplete revelation. He didn't know how that was going to happen, and he himself did not fully comprehend how he was supposed to put his faith in Jesus for the sake of his sins being paid for on the cross. John trusted in Jesus. We know John is in heaven, but John didn't see the cross. And he didn't see the resurrection. Which means that the revelation you and I have is greater than the revelation that John had. Which means by simple fact of placing our faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and rising from the grave, by simply testifying to that truth, by placing our lives in the hands of Christ. We proclaim a greater message and we receive a greater righteousness. Which means that even the smallest of us, even the least of us, is greater than John the Baptist you are here today and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I want to show you something that John did not fully understand. From God's word, I want you to understand. You don't have to flip there, just listen. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 9 makes the statement, for without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. What that means is somebody has to die. Sins, sin requires death. It says in Romans, for the wages of sin is death. The thing that produces death in our world is sin. The only way you overcome that is if somebody's blood is shed. We sang about it a little while ago. This is what it boils down to. This is what John didn't fully grasp. Jesus Christ died on the cross in order to forgive you of your sins. He died the death that you deserve to die. And if you will repent of your sins and trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross, you can be forgiven and you can be saved. If you are here today and you have never made that decision, 
don't leave here without giving your life to Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer.